turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. We're flying now in chapter 2. We are cruising. Now this miracle is the wine. Into wine, the miracle, the wedding of Cana. Now we're not going to look at all of it. We're going to spend some time looking at just the first five verses. And before we get into the actual text, I got to display a little bit of my own difficulty and maybe even aversion to this miracle. It came from when I was in high school. When I was in high school, there was this, there was a comedy bit that everybody was talking about, all the guys in my high school were talking about. Uh, this comedian named D.L. Hughley, he was making a joke about this miracle. And he was saying, like, you know, Jesus was really cool and he was down to party and You know, when the party was almost over, he said, you know, I don't normally do this, but y'all go ahead and have a good time. And everybody thought it was so funny. You know, we live in Texas in the Bible Belt. And and in my moment there as a teenager, I was in a bit of an apologetic crisis. Like, how do I deal with this? Uh, Because I know how I know that this is in the Bible. I know that it's true, but I don't know how to defend this miracle from scoffers saying that that Jesus was just down to party and gave, made sure that the, the good times didn't end. So then I started thinking about, I mean, why is this miracle even in here? It doesn't really look like any of the other miracles. It doesn't seem to have any uh, personal connection, like, like the, the woman with the bleeding disorder, or, or it doesn't seem to have any kind of obvious altruism. The blind healed, the lepers healed, the lame healed. It doesn't seem to have anything like that. It just seems like a trivial parlor trick that he can just make elements change. Uh, And who cares if the party was lame? I mean, so I'm struggling with this as a teenager. And, And then you start thinking about it much more as I grow in my faith. This is the first miracle that he ever does. This is the big public ministry opening scene for Jesus. Up until then, his ministry has been relatively private. He has that moment where John the Baptist declares who he is, but Jesus doesn't do anything in that moment. And then we've seen him calling five disciples, but again, no ministry moment is done, nothing public. They're just a band of six guys at this point. And yet he makes this his big public moment. Well, John, rather Jesus, what I want to have us think about is working that John, the author, and then Jesus, the focus, the, the, the word made flesh, is working on the surface and below the surface. Now, what I don't want to say is that, uh, that surf, there's something surface level that doesn't really matter. We're not talking about that. But, but what we're reading this portion of scripture, there is something happening that's very obvious. There is a wedding. The wine is running out, and Jesus does miraculously turn water into wine. And we're going to spend most of, we're going to spend next week really looking at the miracle itself. It's truly a miracle, but there's something working under the surface as well. Now, don't hear me say like, well, that's just surface level, that miracle water turning into wine. I'm not saying that at all. That is truly an out and out miracle, and we will dive into that next week. Uh, But rather, we need to appreciate what was what is obvious, water into wine, and what's less overt in this moment. So here's the best way I could try to think to explain what I'm getting at with above the surface and below the surface. So uh, my wife and I used to work at a camp, and we would uh, have to go through lifeguard training every summer. And lifeguard training is straight up miserable. It's terrible. One of the things you have to do is you have to tread water for five minutes. And apparently it used to be worse. I talked to old guys that were like, quit being a baby. We had to swim with jeans on and then take the jeans off and loop it over your head and tie a knot in it to make it into flotation. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's way worse. But uh, we're sissies now in the 2000s, so this is hard. Five minutes of treading water. But then after you tread water for five minutes, before you can get certified, they hand you a, 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 a 10-pound brick, and you have to tread water holding that brick for two minutes. So now you've lost the movement of your arms. And it sounds like they're just saying, okay, we want all of you to drown today, and this is how we're going to get it done. Everybody's going to drown with this brick. 
but then you realize you can do it, kind of, even if you never practiced it before. Because you, even though you've lost your arms, your arms give a lot of uh, confidence, like in rock climbing, but really everything is your legs. So when you lose your arms because you're holding that brick now, your legs can kick and still keep your head above water. That's in a sense kind of what we're talking about here. That if you could tread water with your arms, you would. You wouldn't go, ah, I don't really need these. No, you would, and they add, and they are really contributing to the treading of the water. But what's happening under that water, your legs, now that is what can hold you up if the top part is not there. You can stay above water if you have legs but no arms. So we're going to be looking at this morning the arms treading and the legs treading of the miracle here in John 2, 1 through 5. We'll see how this illustration can kind of play out. I hope that it's going to be helpful. So here's our outline. Verses 1 and 2 is the weight of a wedding. we got to look at that because remember, like we said last week, we have to put ourselves back into the Bible's context, not bring the Bible into our context. Verses 3 and 4, we're going to see Mary the theologian. I'm going to back that up. And then verse 5, we're going to see Mary the disciple. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. First few words, on the third day. What? Is that just so that a band could have a name in Christian contemporary culture in the 90s? No. The third day. Go back to verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 35 and 43. You have days being marked. Now, it goes this one day, then verse 43, the next day, and then chapter 2, verse 1, the third day. So that's where we are. That's what's going on. The third day since Jesus now has disciples. Mary, Jesus, and his disciples are now at this wedding in Cana. Cana is a town in Galilee. We can presume it's someone that they all knew. At least Jesus and Mary's family knew, and Jesus was able to bring his disciples along with them. Now, we don't know if he has 12 disciples yet. I tend to think that it's just the five that he had earlier. We don't see all 12 disciples until the end of chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus is from Galilee, but he hasn't been in Galilee for several days now, right? He's down in the southeast with John the Baptist. He's on the east side of the Jordan River where John the Baptist was, and now he's made his way back up. Remember, he goes to call Philip and Nathaniel. They're in Bethsaida. That's a town in Galilee. Cana's another town in Galilee. So now they're back up north, back in Jesus' home region. Now, what has happened, we need to know this, what has happened since Jesus has left Galilee, his home region, and now is back? What's happened in his life? Well, he's been publicly declared to be the Messiah. We saw that the Son of God. He's recruited disciples. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him, marking him out as the Son of God. So keep that in mind as we read on. Now, the setting, a wedding. There was a wedding. Now, in the Bible, this happens a lot more in older translations like the King James. There's this category we can call false friends. Now, these are words that we have a meaning for in our mind, but it's not the same meaning that the Bible means. So when I say wedding, nobody's like, what are you, what, what's a wedding? You never, it's not like you never heard of that. So when, you, when I say wedding, you think of exactly what you perceive to be a wedding, and it's very Western, it's very American, it's very modern. Now, that is what we could call a false friend. I have an idea of what this word is, that's not what's going on. Here's what it's like. A false friend, meaning like when you're talking to a British person and they talk about French fries, chips, biscuits, and football. Now, we think that they're talking about, when they say, when they say chips, biscuits, and football, we think that they mean French fries, Doritos, and passing and catching. But what do they actually mean? They mean something totally different. They mean crackers and actually kicking a ball with your foot. False friends. Those were using the same words, but they mean something totally different. So a first century Jewish wedding for a couple is a week-long event, at least. A week-long event, and it's hosted in the couple's house, the married couple's house. And it's hosted primarily by the groom, the groom himself, not the groom's family. The groom himself is the one hosting this. 
Now, this wedding week was a public statement, a public preview, in a sense, of their viability as a couple. Is he going to be able to provide for her? Is she going to be able to really follow him? Is this really going to work out? And if something went wrong at a wedding, when we think of something going wrong at a wedding in our modern context, what we think of is a bridezilla crying and screaming while mommy consoles her. That is not what goes wrong at these kinds of weddings. At this, if it goes wrong at this wedding, the attendees are insulted and disrespected, and all of their ire is directed to one person, the groom. All of the disrespect comes from one guy. In fact, fathom this, if some kind of social moray is broken at one of these week-long weddings, then the, the, the bride's family can sue the groom. Now, you thought you got off to a bad start with your in-laws. At least they didn't sue you for having a bad wedding. I mean, this is, this is heavy social, sociological stuff. The, the shame of the whole community would come upon this groom and then also this couple because she loves him and she's a part of him. They would see him as an imposter. He's not a biblical man. He's not a mature man. He's immature. He hasn't planned. He can't think anything through. He can't provide. He is inadequate is what would happen. See, our culture is not an, an honor-shame culture nor is most of the Western world where uh, you can bring shame on your family. Like that, that, that's all pretty much dead and buried, that we don't really, really experience that at all. But the Eastern world, especially the first century Eastern world, is not an individualistic. There is a massive expectation that you uphold the honor of the family name. And shame is not something that you're like, well, who cares what y'all think? I'll just move and go to a different town and have better friends there. It follows you everywhere you go. It was a cataclysmic blunder to shame the family name. So that's what could happen in this moment. That's, that's what the wedding is about that they have been invited to. Now look at verse 3. We're going to see Mary the theologian. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now the wine at a wedding, first century Jerusalem, it's not supposed to run out. This wasn't an impending reality. When the wine runs out, y'all got to go. That, that's not how it was supposed to work. This was never supposed to happen. It wasn't that the party was winding down and everyone wanted to stay and keep it going because they were having so much fun. It wasn't that, the, that at all. Rather, it was a fairly significant social faux pas, a blunder, a social blunder that can have pretty bad consequences. Uh, now, let's pause on this verse. I don't know about you, but this story always came across to me uh, reflecting poorly on Mary. That, that she seems to be like a snooty friend of the mother of the bride who's a busybody and just keeping stock about how well the party seems to be going. That, that she's so vapid and shallow that her biggest concern of the month is that her friend's daughter's wedding might not be the hit of the year. And then all of a sudden, she remembers she has a son who has superpowers. I mean, that would be like hosting a massive family gathering, a family reunion for Thanksgiving, and you're the mother of Superman, and then the, the oven breaks, and so you go, oh, my son can just cook the turkey with his laser vision. And that'll save the day, and we won't have to go turkeyless at Thanksgiving. That's what it always came across to me like in, in this moment. Now, don't worry, everyone. My son will save the day. You don't know him very well yet, but he's a pretty big deal. And this is a chance for me to show you, helping you out and also showing off my kid as if she's some insecure southern debutante trying to gain social notoriety by exploiting her son's supernatural powers. Now, this may not be true of you, but I know in my own history as a Christian, Mary stops being noteworthy after Jesus is born. And we don't really see much of her after Jesus is born, but to our shame, I think that she stops being 
noteworthy, notable, meaningful after Jesus is born. So I think what we need to do as a church collectively is a little reputation restoration for Mary. At least I have to do that for my own self. Because here in this moment, above the water and below the water, arms treading and legs treading, she is most honorable. She is certainly not dumb. She is certainly not shallow. In fact, you could call her a theologian. Before we get into what she actually said about her son, what we need to do is remember what does she know about Jesus? We can know what she knows about Jesus by just going back to Luke chapter 1. Look at verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen to what he says. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Who is Jesus that Mary knows for sure from the mouth of an angel? He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what she knows to be true about Jesus. Verse 35, how is this going to come about, she says. Verse 34, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary knows this about her son. She knows this. Now, what else does she know? She knows that he's, from this, before we move on, he's the son of the Most High. He's the son of God. He's the eternal Davidic king who, whose kingdom will know no end. He will not be born in the seed of man. He will be born in the seed of God. That's what she knows to be true from just that one interaction. Now, then she sings that, the song that often gets called the Magnificat of Mary when she's rejoicing about this moment. But let me skip down to uh, about, in chapter 1 of Luke, about verse, um, let's look at verse 49. For he is mighty, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And here we go, verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So in that moment, she now is thinking... God is going to use her to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 through this child that's going to be born to her. So as a teenager, Mary is clear that the son of her womb, the first son, the first child that she ever has is going to be the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, the, the covenant that her people have been thinking about, teaching about, dreaming about forever since the beginning of their people. She knows that Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. She knows that he's the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12. She knows that he's the eternal king from David's line in 2 Samuel 7. She knows that he is the son of God, that he is the most high. She knows that this directly from the mouth of Gabriel. But what else does she know about Jesus? Luke 2. A familiar passage for us all. Luke 2, when Jesus is lost, in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So from that moment, she knows that his understanding of God and theology was astonishing to her, astonishing to her husband, and astonishing to the educated Ph.D. theologians of their entire nationality. She never disciplined him once in her life. She also knew that, that Jesus, as Jesus was submissive to them. So she knows all of this. So now, after 30 years of watching this God-man grow up, knowing that he is truly God, born of the Holy Spirit, the promised Davidic king who will reign on the throne forever and ever, the true son of Abraham, when he returns to Galilee, after, the John, after John the Baptist declares him to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we cannot possibly think that all Mary wants is for the party to not end at this wedding. It can't be just that. Let's practice some good study habits. Don't presume we know what Mary said until we read it. Look at what it says in verse 3. What does Mary say? They have no wine. Did she ask him anything? No. Does she look at him and say, uh, they have no wine. What are you going to do about it? Does she tell him to do anything? She never says, hey, make more wine for this party. She never says, hey, what can you do about the wine shortage at this celebration? All she does is look at Jesus and say, they have no wine. Now, before we dig further into his statement, let's see what Jesus says. His response is going to help us understand what Mary meant by what she said below the surface. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, kids here and kids on video, if you think as a rascal that you can call your mama woman and then say, Jesus said it, and get away with it, well, you deserve whatever beating comes your way. Because culturally, what Jesus said was ma'am, not woman. It could be translated probably better, dear woman. Ma'am is what he called her. Jesus calling her woman is, is an equivalent to a level of respect because if you look at John 19, 26, Jesus is on the cross and what is he? He's assigning things. John is there, John the one who wrote John and he says, he says woman, behold your son, talking to his mother that, that John's going to take care of you now because I'm your firstborn son and I'm dying so I'm going to pass that over to him. So this is odd, but it's not disrespectful. Now put yourself in this situation. If you're in this moment, your mom's there, it's a big family wedding, you're an adult, you're 30 years old, and if my mom said the same line to me, I wouldn't respond back with, ma'am, it's not my time yet. Why wouldn't Jesus just call her mother? Why, why a respectful but distant reference to her? Now that his ministry's begun and the Holy Spirit's been poured onto him in the Jordan River, this is why. Mary's relationship to Jesus has now changed forever. It's never going to be what it used to be. Their mother-son relationship has, in a sense, dissolved. That, that part of it is over. She had to come to Jesus as Savior, not her son. Jesus could not give her the inside track to salvation. She had to become, in a sense, just like everyone else who's looking for salvation, a sinner who needs a savior. Now that makes the picture of Simeon's prophecy about Mary so much more clear. If you're familiar with Luke chapter 2, when, when they're bringing Jesus on the eighth day to the temple in Jerusalem so that he might be circumcised, that's faithfully keeping the old covenant law. When, he come, when they bring him up the steps to the temple, Simeon is waiting and he rejoices because he's seen God's salvation, but he speaks to Mary some very um, 
heavy words. Look at Luke 2, 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that many hearts may be revealed. He told that mama, your heart is going to be pierced as if it was with a sword. How heart-piercing would it be to have the mother-son relationship with your firstborn dissolve and go away? It's no longer coming to him as a son, never to be reinstated. What kind of woman must Mary have been? This is an unbelievable position for her to be in such a strong woman of faith to walk that path that God had laid out for her. Just about every mom's full catalog of horrific nightmares that could happen to your child happened to her son. And she had to just watch it. A sword certainly did pierce her heart, and yet she never wavers. Now go back to what Jesus' response to her. He said, my hour has not yet come. Now what does that mean? That's the response. So John uses this language in Jesus' own words of my hour not yet coming. My, this is not my hour yet. For example, it appears in chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 8, chapter 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20. But then it switches to my hour has come or the hour is now here. In chapter 12, verse 23, chapter, 12, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, he's referring to that hour coming. It's not that yet here and that now it is. He's referring to the divinely appointed time for his death. That's the hour. Now go back to the conversation that Mary's having with him in real time. Mary says they have no wine, and Jesus says, I'm not ready to die. <laughs> what? Did we miss something? Oh, what kind of response is that? It seems like Jesus is having a bit of an overreaction. Like, hey, man, we're at a wedding. This is a huge overreaction. Kinds that, that's what it looks like. The kinds that can happen in families all the time. One of my greatest overreactions of all time was when we were in the ultrasound room with, when Mallory was inside of Anna's womb and the doctor told us that she is a girl. And Anna responds like a rational person. She's crying tears of joy, and in my mind, I run all the way to high school, and I say out loud, you know what, I think I can watch girls basketball. But you know, and then I say again, that there's, there's no way I can pay for a wedding. And to where everybody should be like, nobody's asking you to do any of that. She's not even close to being born yet. Classic overreaction. Now, is Jesus doing this? He knows something is coming, like I knew those things are coming. And he's like, ah, is that what's happening? Ah, let's look at this. Let's look at arms treading water and legs treading water. Arms treading water. Mary saying, show the world who you are and bless these people in a relatively miniature crisis. That's the arms treading water on the top that everybody can see. Mary knew who Jesus was. And she was understandably eager for everybody else to know who Jesus was. At least the big things she knows. She's also kind-hearted. And she doesn't want social scorn to come upon these people, this groom and this new bride. Probably maybe related to her in some way. So she's kind-hearted. She seems to be involved in some hosting aspect because she turns and talks to the servants in the next verse. But then when Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? What he's not saying is like, this is your problem, mom. You figure it out. What he's saying is that I follow one person's order list. I take commands from one person. Let me give you some examples. John 7, 16. Jesus saying, I, or, uh, uh, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, give, have, has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. He says, Mom, I know you're excited and you're eager 
about this, but I go on my heavenly father's timeline and no one else's. But he still does do it. We're going to look at that more next week. He still does do it, and it still is the time for his ministry to be made public, but it's not time for him to fulfill the role of the Davidic king, like Mary knows, or the son of the Most High, like Mary knows. We're going to dig more into that next week. Now, here's a side note that we need to know as good Protestants. This passage is primary for the doctrine in Catholic belief for worshiping and praying to Mary. Why do you think that? Just look, at the, just look at it on its face. It sounds like Jesus didn't want to do something, but when his mama asked, he said, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. So if you want something from Jesus, why don't you pray to Mary? And if Mary will go and ask Jesus, then who can say no to mama? Now that's, that's a diluted version of it, but that's not not it. What the Catholic doctrine does is they make Mary a mediator to the mediator. Some will even call her a co-mediatrix. That she mediates to Jesus who mediates to God. A lot of Catholic theology is putting mediators between you and Jesus. Whether it's the priest, and then it's the bishop, and then it's the cardinal, then it's the pope, then it's Mary, then it's Jesus, then it's God. But this is where that doctrine comes from. Uh... We would disagree with it because though he does turn the water into wine, he does offer a bit of a gentle rebuke here to his mother, telling her that his messianic timeline is not dictated by anybody else. And if he does do this, it's not going to be because, well, my mom asked me to and whatever. I guess I got time and I can. It's easy enough for me. I am God. That's not why he's doing it. So that's the arms Treading water. Now let's look below the surface. Legs treading water. Here's the legs treading water. Mary could be saying, these people live in darkness and they have no hope of life. And I know that you are the life and the light of men. The miracle of turning water into wine is certainly, it certainly matters in space and time. It certainly teaches us much about Jesus, about him being the God-man. And we're going to dive into that next week. But what if we have this miracle and we have no Calvary? What if we have all of these miracles? Jesus heals everyone he sees and he blows everybody's mind with his power over nature, his power over creation, over the created order, but yet doesn't go to the cross, doesn't rise again. Then all of those miracles were to no end and are eternally irrelevant if he does these miracles and doesn't go to the appointed time. See, Mary wasn't told anything specifically about Jesus' miracles. Now, we're presuming, based on the scriptures, that this is the first miracle she ever even sees him do. That she doesn't even know that's going to be part of his deal. She must have had something else in mind when she said that they have no wine. And if she didn't, certainly God did. Can God use people unwittingly to speak his truth when they don't even know it? Absolutely he can. John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest leading the charge of killing Jesus, speaks the truth about who Jesus is. He doesn't even know it. John points that out. Doesn't Balaam speak the truth over God's people in Numbers 23 and 24 as a pagan, godless prophet for hire? Yes, he does. So then, to get to the treading legs of Mary's statement, we need to d drill down in to what it means for the people to have no wine. See, wine in the scriptures is a symbol of, of peace and blessing, joy and fullness of life. Psalm 104 tells us that. Look at Psalm 104, 14. Praising God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants, for the man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen the man's heart. So Mary could have restated herself by saying the people are lifeless. The people are joyless and hopeless. Now even further, the Old Testament prophets talk about the coming messianic age, the coming of Christ, the day of salvation. And when they describe it, wine is a part of it. Symbolically, look at Hosea 14.7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. 
They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Now here's a bigger chunk. Look at Amos 9, 13 through 15. Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming. They're not yet there in Amos' time, but they're coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, declares the Lord. When the Messiah comes, when the anointed one comes, he's going to make everything right in a new heavens, in a new earth, in a new Jerusalem. And something as expensive and rare and difficult to have like wine is just going to be everywhere. Like the streets of gold kind of analogy. It's just commonplace. It's all over the place. The symbolism of wholeness and newness and redemption that the Messiah will bring. Now the big idea, now the main thread that connects all of this together comes from Jeremiah 31. Now in Jeremiah 31, there's a glorious day of God's redemption that's coming. Jeremiah, several centuries before the advent of Jesus. Now in verse 10, he says this, or God through him, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations! And declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young and the flock of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then the young women shall rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with the abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. That's a day of peace, joy, laughter, rest, provision, abundance. The day is coming, the messianic new day. But Jeremiah is not done writing. And here's where he gets very specific in verse 31 of the same chapter. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I'm making a new one, not like what I made with Moses, a new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I shall write it on their hearts. How is that different than Moses' Moses's covenant? The law of God was not within the people. It was outside the people. It was not on their hearts. They had to conform their hearts to it. And in verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's the big idea. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This vibrant day of sin being forgiven, of God's word being on our hearts, that's called the new covenant. Now flash forward 600 years to Jesus's final night before he dies. Luke 22, 19 through 20. And he, Jesus, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup, the cup full of wine after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Are you with me on this? Jesus holds up a cup of wine. Wine like at the wedding of Cana. And he says, This symbolizes the new covenant. And the new covenant is the fulfillment of all the covenants that God has made with mankind. 
It's the culmination of his redemption plan throughout all of history. Now rewind the clock from that moment in the upper room with Jesus three years back to the wedding of Cana. And Mary says, they have no wine. What do they have? They have no new life. They have no new covenant. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. I am going to die for these people. But it's not that time yet. Whether or not we know exactly what Mary knew when she was saying these things, it's hard to know for sure. I tend to think, just because I'm an optimist, that she had some idea. Because she knew of the new covenant. If she'd been going to synagogue faithfully, she would have heard Jeremiah 31. But who, more than her, had more revelation, direct revelation, about who Jesus was going to be? She, she had more told to her about Jesus than John the Baptist did. She knew what this guy was supposed to be. So what these people really need is eternal life, not a fun party. What these people really need is to avoid eternal condemnation, not the shame of fellow Jews. That's what they really need. So the treading arms and the treading legs, the treading arms are Jesus provides and cares for those moments in our lives that we're panicking. What the treading legs are is that you don't need to just avoid pain and suffering and shame here on earth. You need to avoid eternal pain and eternal judgment forever. That's what you need above all things. The reality is that it points to Jesus as the lone mediator of the new covenant. That carries the weight. And when she's told that, woman, ma'am, this is not the time for that to happen how does she respond? Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Does she say, Jesus, you owe me. I birthed you in a stable. Do this. My friends need it. She just, she doesn't even, she's done talking to him now. Now she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Did Jesus say, Okay, I'm gonna, I'll go ahead and just deal with these servants. Let's go ahead and get them get the water pots. No, he doesn't tell her anything about what he's about to do. She just turns and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> Jesus didn't even really answer her question or respond to her directly. Does she know what Jesus is going to tell them? She has no idea. She just says, do whatever he says. Here's what D.A. Carson, his commentary is very good. And he said this. He said, in short... In chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In 2, verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She still does not know what he would do, but she has committed the matter to him and trusts him. That's where she ends up. She ends up with, you're right, I have no idea what your purposes are. Ultimately, I know the big things. But I don't know the day-to-day nitty-gritty of when things are going to happen as far as timeline goes. But I, you are the Savior. And she submits to him as much. We would all do, here in conclusion, we would all do well to carry out the implications of Mary's words into our lives today. The words that we have recorded by Mary are precious few, so we shouldn't miss them when we see them. If we translate, if you literally take verse 5, uh, what Mary's words are, do whatever he tells you. If you translate that from the Greek, that word whatever means everything, all things, anything that he tells you to do. That's what we need to be applying to our lives always. Do anything that Jesus tells you to do. Now, if you're like me, you're happy to do some of the things that Jesus has told us to do, depending on which way we lean. When Jesus says, I came to divide mother against son and, and, and father against son and husband against wife, and I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, some of us are like, yeah, I want to do that. But then when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You're like, I mean, it's not really my jam. We do everything, anything that Jesus says to do. 
maybe we, are, we could be this. We could be agreeable to do a few of the things that we know that Jesus has said to do. And if I just limit my knowledge, then I'm not responsible to do it. That was my strategy through all of college. If I don't ever learn how to do laundry, I won't ever have to do it. And I can always just say, I don't know how. That, that died real quick on May 17, 2008 when I got married. Figure it out because I'm out of town and you need clean clothes. Mom's not here. The same thing, sometimes we do that with the words of Christ, which are not just the red letters. They're every letter from end to end. Do we know everything that God has said to do? Well, of course we don't. But are we striving to know everything that he said to do? Because anything that he says here, I am to do. That's the command of Mary to those servants. We should hear two things in that command. We are responsible to know everything that Jesus has said to do. And we're responsible to do everything that Jesus said them to do. And we know that. I mean, we know the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We love that part. That part's exciting. The next part's the hard part. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we know that that's what we're supposed to do. Mary's just saying lockstep what Jesus is going to say right before he ascends into heaven. Now, how do we do this? Let's give some practical handles on this. How do we execute this charge from Mary, which is really from God? I think the number one way, the, the, the primary way, not number one, the first way that we carry out this charge is that we gather with God's people on the Lord's day. Now, I know that we are in this weird season, and I'm looking at a bunch of bandits right now with all their masks on, and, and, and you're out there because you're taking care of elderly parents, or you have somebody who's close to you that's immunocompromised, or your job is like this, or you have... I get it. I get it. That This is a weird time. But even in this weird time, we can't stop saying what we know to be true is that we have to gather together. When we can't say we only gather together when it's safe, we should say instead we gather together when it is wise those of us here right now, we've deemed it to be wise. For those that are not here, you've deemed it to be unwise. And we're in that place right now. We're in that place together right now. And it's weird. But we can't disengage from the truth that gathering on the Lord's day is something that Jesus has called us to do. So we do that first. But that's not all we do. We need to be in the word for ourselves. Do we? I think we... Don't understand the privilege it is to have a Bible. Do you realize that 500 years ago, which is not that long ago, that's, that's when Columbus discovered America, right? We, we got that. He couldn't carry a Bible with him because they didn't have them to give out. And if he did have one, he would have had to have spoken Latin to be able to understand it. That Martin Luther risks death by translating the Bible into German? William Tyndale does get killed by translating the Bible into English? I mean, this is a privilege to have this. Something that saints of old would have killed to have. And we have it in how many English translations? There's too many to count. And you can have it on your phone everywhere you go. You can have it read to you. I, can, I have James Earl Jones reading to me the King James Bible on my phone. You can have anybody read it to you if you can't even read. So we need to be in the Word to know what Jesus has said. Thirdly, we need to be in prayer, individually and corporately. Now, that's the guilter. If I'm going to get guilted in something, it's going to be prayer. I fall short. I, we all fall short on that. But th- that's what Jesus has commanded us to do. Jesus says in Matthew, or no, in John 16, 24, up until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. You must ask. And this is how you pray. That when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, this is, when you pray, this is a framework for you. So we pray. So we're in church, we're in the Word, we're in prayer, and we got to be in, in community. You can do those first three things and nobody ever know anything about you, and you never be known by anybody. That can happen. You can be here every Sunday. You can be reading your Bible on your own. You can be praying, but nobody knows who you are. Now, that's just not a great way to get, get us to gel as a people. That's what we desperately need. 
I have so many blind spots in my own life. How am I going to see them? How am I going to see the ways that I'm not doing everything that Jesus says, according to Mary's command, unless somebody else is around me? Now, marriage is great for that because it's a big, giant mirror of sin. Here's the way you're sinning, honey. You can just see it. But we have other blind spots, too, and we can get used to each other. So we need each other in meaningful, real relationships. And when churches get a certain size, that can't happen with everybody, but it has to happen with somebody. It has to happen with some kinds of people. We need to know each other and be known. When you're straying, when you're struggling, somebody needs to be able to know that without you having to spell it out because you know them so well. That's how, just four ways that we can carry out Mary's command to do whatever he tells you. I love this miracle now that was so enigmatic to me before. And we're going to look at next week the actual turning of water to wine. And it's going to be a wonderful and glorious time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you didn't just send a miracle worker to earth. That you didn't just come and dazzle us with your power over Humanity, your power over nature, your power over disease, your power over systems and governments. That you came to stand in our place and take the full brunt of your own wrath. That you sacrificed yourself to satisfy yourself for lowly creatures from the dust like us could believe and be saved. You came to us who had no righteousness and you gave us your son's righteousness so that we could stand before you without being incinerated. But we could stand before you welcomed, joyfully welcomed. Thank you for not just coming as a good example, Lord Jesus. Thank you for not just coming as the most notable martyr of the known world. Thank you for not just coming as the world's greatest magician or the most profound philosopher, but you came as a substitute. Truly God and truly man. Thank you for that. And thank you for holding fast to the words of your Father and doing everything on His timeline, being perfectly obedient and even seemingly minuscule things that we maybe would have overlooked if we were in your shoes. But you didn't miss one. There wasn't one minor sin, not one peccadillo. Thank you for that. That is why we worship you. We pray that today has been and will be as we sing once more. Um, acceptable and pleasing worship to you as the, as the only recipient of what we're doing here and gathering today. May we be blessed and may we be a blessing to those who are around us as the days continue to remain very strange. And while we don't know the why and what's going on around us, we do know the who, and that is you. And so we trust and we pray with the disciples and with Jairus himself to increase our faith and help our unbelief. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.